Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. It's been 3,155 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27th, 2014, and 237 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, regrettably, our assessment that Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure would increase during the week of October 17th was accurate, with over 50 drones and missiles targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure on Monday alone. Second, Russia's missile and drone strikes are meant to terrorize civilians and increase human suffering, with our team unable to verify any strikes targeting military assets or decision-making centers. Third, we maintain that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue for the rest of the week due to ongoing NATO and Russian military drills driving political posturing in Eastern Europe. Fourth, in our assessment, The attacks on civilians will not break Ukrainian will and only serves to increase Western economic and military support against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Fifth, we maintain that the mobilization of up to 300,000 troops will have little impact on the battlefield due to poor morale and discipline and a lack of equipment among MOBICs. Sixth, we maintain that Ukraine still holds the battlefield initiative, forcing Russian troops to remain defensive on all axes except Solidar-Bakhmut. Seventh, we maintain that using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield is highly unlikely, and the chances of the use of nuclear weapons are in decline. Eighth, despite the improvement in the political situation, we maintain we are in the mutually assured destruction-instability paradox due to previous irresponsible language from the Kremlin. Ninth, we maintain our assessment that the Russian military in Ukraine is combat-destroyed and has no meaningful way to respond to the ongoing and accelerating collapse on multiple fronts. And finally, we assess that the chance of Russian forces invading from Belarus with the support of Belarusian troops has increased but remains low at this time. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. First, a quick errors and omissions. On October 17th, that would be yesterday, we reported that Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones had set fuel storage tanks on fire in Mykolaiv. 
The strike actually set two tanks holding sunflower seed oil awaiting export on fire. We thank you for your understanding as we cut through the fog of war. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, continues its media blackout in Kherson Oblast. Therefore, we have not updated our warm-up for Kherson since October 16th. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that a small Russian unit, up to a platoon in size, tried to bypass Ukrainian positions in Novokamyanka. They suffered heavy casualties and were forced to retreat to their original defensive positions. Pro-Russian sources didn't fully confirm the attempted attack, but reported Ukraine did troop rotations in Novokamyanka and there was an exchange of mortar and artillery fire. There really wasn't any other specific fighting that we could report. The situation remains active on the northern axis from Kostromka to Porozensky to Sukhanova. The GSAFU reported that Russian troops were looting Blachodatne to assist in building bunkers and reinforcing their positions. Russian engineers completed a barge bridge across the Dnipro at Kherson, adjacent to the Antonovsky Bridge. We had previously assessed the long-term viability of a barge bridge as extremely low due to the hydrology of the Dnipro River. There was no evidence at the time of recording that the barge bridge was in use. Quick assessment here. Really, it's only a matter of time before HIMARS enters the chat and ends this engineering project. Hydrology is likely to be the least of this new bridge's problems. OCS reported the Ukrainian Air Force executed 11 airstrikes and ground forces completed 250 fire missions. The only targets we can report were two Russian ammunition depots in the Bereslav Ryan, which encompasses a large geographic area. Russian forces continue to shell Kutsurub from the Kinburn Spit, firing across the Dniprovska Gulf. Due to the caliber of the systems Russia is using and the distance, there wasn't significant damage reported, and some shells continued to fall short and landed in the water. Russian forces attacked holding tanks filled with sunflower oil for export for the second time. Two more tanks holding a total of 15,000 tons of food-grade oil were damaged, with rivers of the oil flowing down local streets. The attack by Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 drones caused a fire, which was quickly extinguished. However, the flow of oil could not be stemmed. Mykolaiv was later hit by at least one S-300 anti-aircraft missile used for ground attack. The missile hit a two-story residential building, and we'll have more information on it for you in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. Continued Russian attacks on Ukrainian energy infrastructure triggered a subvoltage protection event on the 750-kilovolt line that supplies Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, disconnecting the external power connection. The event occurred because the voltage into the plant dropped too low. One diesel backup generator was activated for a few minutes, but it was turned off after Energoatom operators concluded the 330-kilovolt backup line from the nearby thermal plant would provide adequate power. This was the third power disconnection in the last seven days due to ongoing attacks on Ukrainian energy infrastructure. Due to the situation, plant operators have abandoned restarting Reactor 5 but are leaving the reactor in a hot shutdown state so that it can provide steam to ZNPP. 
Three more truckloads of diesel fuel arrived for the plant from Crimea, while additional spare parts arrived from Zaporizhia. At the time of recording, there wasn't any information about Mykopol, which has been hit by artillery and rockets daily since July. The earlier attacks on the Dnipropetrovsk energy infrastructure in Dnipro required power to be turned off in the city and across the oblast so that repairs could be made and the electrical load balanced. We had reported on October 17th that a Russian cruise missile caused major damage to, quote, critical energy infrastructure. At least two missiles struck the city, and the water service was impacted. Up to four KH-101 air-to-sea cruise missiles were fired by Tu-95 strategic bombers at Kriviri. Oleksandr Vilkul reported that at least one missile struck the northern part of the city. A video showed a black cloud of smoke rising into the sky, but there wasn't any information on damage or potential targets. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. Russian forces shelled settlements from the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border to Huliapola to Orikhiv to Shirvaki. Otherwise, there wasn't any significant fighting reported by any source. Russian mill bloggers are now reporting that Ukrainian forces are reinforcing defensive lines instead of preparing for a counteroffensive. Okay. In southwest Donetsk, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, militia public relations channel reported offensive action in one location today. If you can call a video of artillery strikes of questionable accuracy proof of fighting. The militants claimed they destroyed two Grad Multiple Launch Rocket System, or MLRS, launchers and two tanks, but didn't provide any pictures or video proof. Ukrainian forces carried out 175 fire missions on the Russian-occupied territory. Yeah, that's not a typo. I hear you. Not a typo. It was, in fact, the very same number as yesterday. There was only positional fighting west of Donetsk. Elements of the 1st Army Corps continued to push west toward Krasnokhorivka, but could not move the line of conflict. West of Donetsk, there was positional fighting in Pervomaiske, Nevelsky, Marinka, and Pobida. A video showed Ukrainian troops, at least one tank and two to three infantry fighting vehicles, had retaken the E-50 Ringroad stronghold at the border of Piski and Pervomaiske, and were operating freely. The location is as close as you can get to Piski while not within the village, so we aren't prepared to declare Piski contested yet. We did tweak the map, though, to show that Russian forces were no longer in Pervomaiske. The Piski saga continues. The GSAFU reported that an ammunition depot in the port city of Berdyansk was destroyed. The most significant documented fighting continues to be in northeast Donetsk. Russian forces continued their defense of the Donetsk-Luhansk administrative border and building World War II-style static defenses of tank traps, dragon's teeth, and Chech hedgehogs. Fighting on the outskirts of Terny and Torske continued. Russian mill bloggers, no longer convinced of a large Zaporizhia offensive, are now claiming there are large troop buildups in Terny and Torske for a planned push on Kremina. Okay, assessment time. We maintain that Ukrainian forces will not make a direct assault on Kremina, as this does not fit at all with their military strategy. 
Positional fighting continued on the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border south of Lusychansk in Spirne. Unsurprisingly, there were no reported changes on the Solidar-Bakhmut front. Private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, continued attempts to advance on Bakhmutska with no success. Fighting continued east of Bakhmut and in Ivangrad. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled an attack on Klishayivka about six kilometers west of the known line of conflict. The social media channels for PMC Wagner, the DNR and LNR militias made no claims of an advance west of Zaitseve, indicating this was likely a squad or platoon-sized reconnaissance group probing for weaknesses. The Russian Ministry of Defense and some mill bloggers continue to dramatically oversell battlefield success in the region. The war of words continued in the social media space, with PMC Wagner channels continuing to dismiss the claims. Both the DNR militia and the GSAFU reported fighting in Mayorsk. A short video showed artillery firing on Ukrainian positions, but it did not appear to be a successful barrage. Let's move on to Luhansk. Pro-Russian sources reported that Svatov came under heavy artillery fire from Ukrainian forces. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, supported the report, showing significant thermal anomalies in the southern part of the city. The GSAFU reported an attack on Berestova, on the Kharkiv-Luhansk administrative border, was repelled. NASA firms indicated there was heavy fighting in Novoselivsky to the south on the P-7 highway. Ukrainian forces led by the Kraken Division have been pushing southeast on the P-7 approaching Svatov. Ukrainian troops are now approximately 17 kilometers northwest and 13 kilometers west of the important transit hub. Russian forces are putting up stiff resistance to the south. The advances to the northwest and west, however, have enabled Ukrainian artillery units to move up and start shelling the ground lines of communication, called GLOCs, these are supply lines, and the transit hub of Svatov itself. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. Kharkiv was struck by two missiles that hit the industrial region. The metro was suspended so residents could use the subway system as bomb shelters. Power was reportedly knocked out in the city. Ukrainian forces captured a loaded Tornado G MLRS launcher that appears to have suffered an engine breakdown and tire failures. Some quick assessment here. We continue to be utterly amazed that retreating Russian forces do not destroy their military equipment abandoned in the field. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that Russian missiles struck civilian infrastructure in the Sumishina district of Sumy. We'll have more information for you in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. The Kromadas of Shalakhin, Velika Pisarivka, Seredina Buda, and Krasnopilia were attacked by Russian helicopters, mortars, and grad rockets fired by MLRS. Border skirmishes with the Territorial Guard exchanging machine gun fire with Russian troops occurred in Shalakhin and Seredina Buda. Just a quick assessment here. The number of border skirmishes has increased in October but there are no indications that Russian troops are preparing for a larger operation along the Sumy Oblast border. In the Cherniev Oblast, the village of Senkivka was shelled by Russian forces from across the international border. 
You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Looking now to the Kyiv region, Russian forces launched a massive attack of 28 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones on the city, with 23 shot down. The five drones that struck the city targeted civilians and civilian infrastructure. See, the Shahed-136 is pre-programmed and uses GPS to fly to its target and strike it, indicating the attacks were intentional. We'll have more information in the war crimes and human rights segment. The Ukrainian government asked city residents not to shoot at the drones with their own weapons and let the military professionals handle the situation. Pictures showed civilians firing out apartment windows at drones flying over the city. No word yet on whether babusias with jars of pickled produce have also been asked to stand down. Quick sidebar, in case you weren't following along in early March, a Kiev woman managed to down a drone out her apartment window with a jar of pickled tomatoes. Additional attacks were reported in the early morning, targeting electrical infrastructure in eastern Kyiv. Air defense in Brovary, the scene of intense fighting in March, was firing at incoming targets as the massive attack on energy infrastructure continued. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, a Russian Su-35 multi-role fighter launched a KH-59 air-to-sea cruise missile into Odessa, striking civilian infrastructure. There were no injuries reported in the attack. In western and central Ukraine, a missile attack on the Zhitomyr Oblast damaged, quote, energy infrastructure, as Russian forces continued to attempt to plunge the nation of 42 million people into total darkness before winter. There wasn't any information on the scope of the damage or if the power had been knocked out. Explosions were reported in Khmelnytsky and Vinitsia oblasts, but it was unclear at the time of recording if the blasts were from air defenses or successful attacks. There was an unconfirmed report of an explosion in Vinitsia that damaged, quote, critical infrastructure. On the Russian front in Yeysk, a Russian Su-34 crashed shortly after takeoff, crashing into an apartment building about a 1,000 meters from the runway. The pilot ejected just before the crash and was recovered in a daze. The plane exploded on impact, and ammunition cooked off in the large fire. The Russian Ministry of Emergency Situations reported six people were killed in the crash. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed a bird strike caused the crash, despite the crash happening after sunset. Since September, Russia has lost one to two airframes a week in training accidents and takeoff-related crashes. I would not take those odds. Some assessment here. It is likely that one or both of the engines experienced a catastrophic failure during takeoff. Russian pilots are overworked and are flying more hours because combat missions are now flown from deep out of Russian-occupied Crimea or Russia itself. This adds stress to airframes and critical systems already experiencing deferred maintenance. Russian military aircraft are highly dependent on foreign parts, which just creates even more issues. Even before the war started, many Russian aircraft were being held together with duct tape and a prayer. 
I mean, metaphorically speaking, of course, not literally duct tape, probably. I, I mean, I assume. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Russia continues to launch dozens of strikes across Ukraine, targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure just days after Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed widespread attacks were completed and 23 of 29 targets had been successfully hit. So we don't know where that 29 number came from, or if there was any validity at all to the original claim. On Monday, the Ukrainian Air Force claimed they shot down 37 of 43 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones. Jumping in with some quick assessment here, while the Air Force destroyed 86% of the drones that entered Ukrainian airspace, which is impressive by any standard, they performed poorly against incoming missiles, indicating that air defense systems became overwhelmed by the number of incoming attacks. Because the Shahed-136 drones don't use inertial guidance beyond a set-and-forget GPS destination, they are challenging to jam, which really only results in decreased accuracy. The drones are slow and easily shot down, but using defense systems like S-300 anti-aircraft missiles is impractical. We maintain, though, that it is unlikely Iran has the industrial capacity to supply 600 or more drones a month. There is growing concern that Russia, possibly backed by Belarusian forces, is planning to launch an offensive into northern Ukraine in the late fall or early winter. Valery Devenka, head of the Department of International Military Cooperation and aide to the Belarusian Minister of Defense, reported that Russia is deploying 170 tanks, 200 infantry fighting vehicles, and up to 100 artillery and mortar systems. Pictures and video show Russian military hardware arriving in Belarus, some with a triangle tactical marking. Shifting to assessment for a moment, the force size and equipment are inadequate to achieve significant strategic goals, such as capturing Cherniv or Kiev, or making a deep advance toward Lviv. The Russian Ministry of Defense has deployed antiquated equipment into Ukraine, such as T-62 tanks, D-1 howitzers, and S-60 anti-aircraft guns. In our assessment, positioning such a large amount of equipment for a feint or bluff seems misguided. We believe that the possibility of an attack from Belarus remains low at this time, but is now a possibility. Speaking of antiquated equipment, let's talk about Russian mobilization. After videos emerged of press gangs rounding up men in Moscow and reports started coming in of Moscow Mobix killed just days after conscription, it may have become a bridge too far. In one commissariat office, people issued conscription papers waiting to register were told, quote, everyone is free, draft orders have been canceled, mobilization is over, end quote. You know there was someone who signed their contract seconds before that was announced, who heard that and went, Bjats! There were, however, no indications nationally that mobilization was over. Spetsnaz Colonel Babayev Fyodor Zakharovich, commander of the Rosgardia 35th Special Purpose Reconnaissance Unit, was killed in action in Ukraine. Zakharovich became the 41st full colonel killed in action since February 24th, and the 143rd senior officer ranked lieutenant colonel or higher. 
Russia is losing almost six military officers a day since the war started, with 1,323 confirmed killed in action. Russian mill blogger Mertz of the LNR militia wrote another blistering assessment on his Live Journal page. Yeah, I was surprised too, but Live Journal is still a thing and is wildly popular in Russia. Mertz, a radio communications expert, reported that Russian troops were being issued R-163-1U Soviet-era low-band VHF radios from the 1980s. The 100 radios were corroded with rust spots and only came with one nickel-cadmium battery each. Mertz pointed out the reality that soldiers only have 50 radios because one battery must remain in a charger to be swapped and questioned how much life was left in the provided batteries. The communication systems are only secured with an optional headset, which was not issued to the troops. Worse for Russian forces, modern VHF radios meant for civilian and commercial use don't access the low-band frequencies, rendering the military systems incompatible with the Baofeng Chinese radios popular with Russian troops. Finally, Although the R-163-1U is portable, it is about as portable as an old compact luggable PC compared to an iPad. For those of you who weren't around back then, do a search for compact luggable to see what a portable computer was like before there were laptops. It's wild. We understand there is some newer equipment being sent to Belarus, but I guess all is going to plan? In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is some graphic detail in today's report, and if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Four people were killed in Kyiv after the largest attack on the city since April. Bogdan and his wife Victoria Zamchenko, who was six months pregnant, were among four people killed. The couple was found in an embrace, with Bogdan appearing to attempt to protect his wife. The Kiev Independent shared pictures of the couple's bodies. We caution that the photographs are extremely graphic, but we believe it's important for our readers and listeners to have the option to view the realities of war. The photos are definitely not suitable for work or for children, and viewer discretion is advised. You can view them via the link in our full situation report on Patreon, or on the Kiev Independence Twitter account. Another 19 were wounded, some critically. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said in his evening address, quote, Vladimir Putin can mark another achievement. He killed another pregnant woman. End quote. Among the survivors found in the rubble was a feisty orange kitten. A Russian missile strike on the city of Sumy killed five, wounded 14, and left searchers looking for more victims in the rubble. Shelling of Seredina Buda set several homes on fire and hospitalized one person. Vitali Kim, Mikulayev Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that at least one civilian was killed in an overnight missile strike on a residential building. Searchers were combing the rubble for more victims at the time of recording. Russia is using the same strategy applied in Syria— by attacking civilian energy infrastructure nationwide at the onset of winter. The intentional targeting of critical infrastructures such as power, natural gas, water, and sewer 
even when shared with military assets, is considered a war crime when the intent is to deprive those services to the civilian population. Energoatom accused Russia of trying to cause a nuclear accident by specifically targeting electrical substations connected to Ukrainian nuclear power plants that provide electrical connections to the facilities. The company wrote, quote, Although these substations are located quite far from the Ukrainian nuclear power plants, their damage results in the disconnection of the transmission lines through which electricity is transferred from the nuclear power plant to the energy system of Ukraine. And in case these transmission lines are down, the power units of the nuclear power plant are placed in emergency shutdown so that the stations are in blackout mode. End quote. Attacks that started on October 11th have knocked two of four nuclear power plants offline. The Human Rights Commissioner of the Ukrainian Parliament, Dmitry Lubinets, had arranged for Ukrainian officials and members of the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, to attempt a visit to the infamous Olenivka prison camp. When the Ukrainian delegation arrived at the agreed-to transfer point at the demarcation line, the IRC was a no-show. Lubinet said, quote, We planned this visit together with the International Committee of the Red Cross in order to encourage it to obtain access from Russia to the Olenivka POW camp and visit Ukrainian prisoners of war. It appeared to be more difficult for the ICRC than repeating its appeals to both sides on its website. Despite our call and readiness to ensure such a trip, we did not see the ICRC. End quote. A quick editor's note here. Beyond the conflict in Ukraine, there is a body of evidence that the ICRC is becoming a problematic organization that has strayed from its charter and mission. With that said, we appeal to our readers and listeners that if you are compelled to boycott the Red Cross financially, please do not boycott blood donations if you live in an area where alternatives are unavailable. There has been a direct correlation between the Red Cross's declining image and reduced blood donations, hurting the medical community and the patients they serve. We call upon the ICRC to take further action to protect the welfare of Ukrainian prisoners of war and end the both-sides narrative, which only supports false moral equivalency. All right, deep breath. We do get to end this segment with some good news. A prisoner of war swap had 108 women return to Ukraine, some held as prisoners since 2019. The release included 11 military officers, 85 enlisted personnel, and 12 civilians. 37 were defenders of Azovstal, including two from the Azov Regiment. Among the released was medic Victoria Obedina. Obedina made news in May when her four-year-old daughter Alisa arrived in Zaporizhia on a refugee bus with no adults. During filtration, the elder Obedina was taken into custody on trumped-up charges of being an Azov Nazi, while her frightened daughter traveled alone. Russia received 110 prisoners in exchange, and the Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that two Ukrainian women voluntarily decided to remain in Russia. In geopolitical news, the European Parliament has approved the request of the European Conservatives and Reformists political group to include a debate on the recognition of the Russian Federation as a state sponsor of terrorism. When the measure was put to the vote, 
201 supported, 99 were against, and 61 abstained. Tension is high between Iran and Azerbaijan, with Iran moving tanks up to the border between the two countries. Iran, an ally of Armenia, has said that any further attacks on Armenia will be met with war launched by Iran. Japan reportedly has committed to helping Ukraine repair damaged energy infrastructure and ensuring adequate heating will be available over the winter. A timeline was not yet released. In economic news, the ruble was unchanged, with an exchange of 62 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices were steady, with WTI crude unchanged at $86 a barrel and Brent falling to $92. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline on the spot market was set to trade at $2.60 a gallon or $0.69 cents a liter. European Union natural gas futures dropped almost 10% as concerns over winter supply levels are disappearing. EU Dutch TTF natural gas futures were trading at €116 Euros per megawatt hour for November 2022 contracts. It was the lowest price for natural gas in the EU since June 14th, but still more than double the pre-war post-COVID pricing of October 2021. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped to $8.55 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.